you have a Bible and you want to read with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew, chapter 19. I'd like to read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 19, and we'll eventually go to one more place in 1 Corinthians 7, so if you want to find that place so you can get there quicker, maybe a little later on, these two chapters are connected in many ways, and so we'll look to these two throughout the message today. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder." They said unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away... Doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive the saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. That will conclude our reading this morning. If I made some mistakes in the reading, I apologize. Um, Got a little tongue twisted there. Um, For a number of weeks, and we've had some exceptions uh, for various services, but we have tried to preach a series of sermons that was entitled originally Six Silent Sins. Six Silent Sins. And at the onset, I didn't intend for it to go this way, but have felt inclined differently as we've tried to as I've tried to deliver the message. Um, our first and when we talk about silent sins, we're talking about sins that are either performed in secret or ones that are rarely discussed, especially in our world today of political correctness, and as 
the Christian religion becomes less acceptable, we may be tempted more and more to avoid certain things that the Bible discusses. Um, We can't do that. We have to look at what the counsel of God is and His instructions and proclaim it and teach it and apply it to the best of our abilities. As our lives deviate more and more from the Word of God, it becomes more convicting. And so today we want to look at a subject that um, is not something that people like to talk about. Our first sermon that we brought before you along these lines was sexual sin. We talked about a whole different, a lot of sexual sin that is often not discussed. We talked about addiction in the next message and self-control and what the Bible would have us to learn about that, at least in part. The third one we talked about was the sin of inaction. Believing, stating things that we believe, but in the end, not being compelled to actually do those things which God commands us. This morning I want to talk about marriage and divorce. Marriage and divorce. And I'd like to begin our message today by looking at the scripture that we read to you and kind of setting a template as Matthew does here in his writing for this. In verse 3 it says this, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, I want to point out the first part of this verse says this, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. Now we see throughout the book of Matthew, this is a common thing the Pharisees do. Now all the Gospels are this way, where we see the Pharisees, but it seems to be a little more explicit through the Gospel of Matthew that the writer Matthew reveals to us before the dialogue, they came to him with this intent. And so there's an occasion where Jesus' uh, disciples are plucking corn on the Sabbath, and they came to him tempting him. And they began to take of the, show, of the bread and didn't wash their hands in the proper procedure or expectations the Jews had. So it says they came tempting him. And then after this, we learn in Matthew 22, a lawyer comes and says, what is the greatest commandment? And his intent is tempting him. And now they come in the middle of this in chapter 19, and they've come again tempting him. Now I say that because I think that fact in this day is also very common in our day. That very often when people are coming to learn about some of the hard areas of life or the areas that the Bible calls sin, their intent in asking these questions and in seeking out dialogue with other Christians or in discovering what the Bible says is just like these Pharisees. They're coming with the intent To be angry, combative, and perhaps in our day, more than anything, offended. I've come to this discussion about homosexuality, and I I, want to be offended, and I'm looking for a reason to be offended, versus I'm looking for a reason to better understand what the Bible teaches and where that fits in my own worldview. I've also seen the opposite extreme, 
where even religious people, ministers perhaps, have come out, and their intent was not what I would perceive as godly. They were accusatory, perhaps legalistic, perhaps targeting people and situations. And so naturally, when you get somebody who is wanting to be offended and somebody who is seeking to offend, no wonder there's fireworks. So this morning, I want to try to just express to you my very clear intent. And I want to request of you for you to have a certain intent. My intent is twofold. Number one, I want to the best of my ability reflect what God says about marriage and divorce. That's it. I come from a household of divorced parents. So I care about this topic. I have experienced much of the fallout from circumstances related directly to what we're talking about today. Nonetheless, I want to know what does God teach and believe and how ought we to adhere to his word in regards to marriage and divorce? Secondly, I want to help our young people this morning. If there are certain topics that in our last two or three generations have been neglected because of some of these, because they're difficult, because you seek to be accused of of ulterior motives that may be there and may not, and it causes us to silence ourselves about some of the most sacred and important decisions that a kid will ever make in their lives, then they're likely going to be influenced by those in the world who are screaming their opinion about these subjects. And so no wonder that that error will sink into them and they'll begin to live in accordance with those that are screaming at them what they believe, whereas the Bible's true and clear teaching on it is not even known. And so this morning, I would say a second intent that I have, if you're a young person here today and you're saying, you know what, in the next five or seven or eight years, I want to be, I hope to be married. I hope to start a family. I want to tell you, and I want to bring some sobriety to that decision because often when somebody proposes and the wedding is on the horizon Everybody is quick to get excited and to to look towards the wedding and the celebration and the preparation. But we should also balance out the celebration with sober instruction. Because the covenant that a person is making to another person, the promise, we are making before God. And we are engaging in an institution that God both designed or both originated designed and sets the the rules of how he wants that institution to function. And there are going to be days in the future where all the feelings of celebration are long past. And you're involved in this relationship that can be immensely trying and hard. And it goes through seasons And the best that I understand, all the way until the end, 
part of marriage is adapting to those seasons that both you and your spouse and your family unit goes through until the very end. And so on the front end, let us not be in a rush to just celebrate this initial engagement and the matrimony that that occurs and all those initially exciting things but let us balance it with instruction that whenever a person start, uh, starts in a marriage, they may not know entirely what to expect, but at least they can have sound instruction and a warning so that when they get to some of the stumbling blocks in their own marriage, they're yoked with somebody that wants peace and to get through it together God's way. What is a terrible thing is when a young person marries somebody that does not have the same ideas about marriage and the same ideas about life and the same ideas about rearing children and they yoke together. And then they go a little bit in marriage and they start having trials and then responsibility weights start resting upon it and suddenly what was once a married couple that was very close because of their similar interests and their similar desires and their similar goals, once the weight of responsibility sets upon it, it begins to divide and part. And you have to work to get it back together and to stay with the same focus and the same goals. And that requires both people of their own volition sacrificing their wants for the good of one another. You want somebody yoked together with you like that. This morning, I want to begin by saying this. The best way to prevent divorce is to marry a person God approves of. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Now, I don't have time to get into all this morning, nor do I have the ability to get into all this morning what God says about marriage. But I do want to make that initial point before we get to the sin of unbiblical divorce. Marry the right person. Now, I also don't like how that, I don't even like saying it like that because it gives this idea that um, there's a Disney prince and princess out there for everybody, right? And anytime the world takes some concept like that, even if it's true to some extent, they tend to exaggerate and distort it. And that's exactly how the Disney stories always are. There may be elements of truth in certain designs, but they're always distorted. And then whenever you compare your own life to it, it doesn't match up. But I want to give for a template just very briefly this morning. We don't have time to turn there. The book of Genesis chapter 24 lays out for us many things about marriage and finding the right person. But there are three things that I want to recall from a story in Genesis 24 that I think are helpful in our day to consider about before you marry. So if you're a young person here today and you're looking prospectively to get married, I want you to consider these three things very briefly about Genesis 24. Abraham had a son whose name was Isaac. Isaac grew up. He was a young man. He was looking for a spouse or he desired a spouse. Abraham sent his servant to go find a spouse. And whenever he went to send him to find a spouse, Abraham was given very specific, or excuse me, his servant was given very specific qualities that had to be met. Now I want to point out a few things about that story. I'm not going to detail the whole story because we don't have time this morning. But I want to point out what I would believe to be three principal things 
that as a young person is looking to enter into marriage, they ought to consider before they do. Number one, Isaac's parents were involved in who was selected. That is so far removed from American thought today. And to me, it's an awful thing that that's the case. We have taken this idea of freedom to a level that I don't even think was originally intended by our founders who started the country. But it has so resonated so deeply in our minds, it has moved from freedom to more of rebellion. I am going to do what I want, and if anyone tries to set boundaries upon me, I am free from those boundaries. I am free from any constraints. But listen this morning. Your parents have the right desire for you. If your parents love you, and they really desire the right things for you, and they have sacrificed untold amounts for your well-being up to this point, and now you're on the precipice of making the single, what I believe to be the single most important natural decision you will ever make. It is who you marry is going to influence your life from what I can see more than any other decision that you're ever going to make in life. At least naturally. And so it makes a lot of sense to me and in other cultures throughout the world and all down through time, including in that occasion, parents had some degree of involvement of helping guide their children and who they might marry. Now listen, here's what I'll say about a parent's role in that. Because you can also have the opposite extreme. Parents can not want you to leave and cleave. They can want you to stay yoked to them. And that's a dangerous thing. And that's certainly not what I'm advocating this morning. But I do think there is a place where the Bible lays out certain things that are ideal for a spouse to embody. And in Genesis chapter 24, it locates some of those. Whenever Abraham sent the servant out to go find a spouse, one of the requirements was she had to be of the right heritage. She had to descend from Abraham family. I think there's a type in that. I think it is recommendable for anyone that's here that's not been married. I would highly recommend you marry somebody who is saved by God's grace. Now, before your mind jumps to, but what about this? And what about this exception? I get it. But I'm saying, don't you all believe, don't you all think that in a vacuum, it is best for someone to marry somebody else who is a Christian? Because there are going to be decisions in life that both of you are going to have to make. And if both of you, the heart's desire is our responsibility is to yield our will to God. Our responsibility is to fulfill the roles that God has designed. Not that I or you or the world has, but God is the former, final arbiter in ever any of our disagreements. I think it's recommendable to marry somebody who is saved. But I would say that's not good enough. Because there's a lot of people who are saved that sure don't live like it. And so whenever the servant got to where he was going to find a spouse, as he prayed, 
he wanted her to exhibit certain qualities. Here Rebecca comes out. She sees this weary traveler and she offers him something to drink. He had brought 10 camels with him. Now, I haven't done it in a long time, but there was a time whenever I did the math on how much, how much water a camel can hold, and then you multiply that times 10, and it's, you know, six, eight hundred, a thousand gallons. It's something just amazing how much water a camel can hold. And so it says in the text that she then went and she got water for all of his camels. She had a servant's heart. She had an attitude, one of service to even somebody who was a stranger of compassion and kindness. And listen today, if you're going to marry somebody and they have a rebellious spirit towards their parents, they're defiant of authority, they're wanting to always cut corners, they don't have upstanding character and integrity, I think it would be wise, and perhaps your parents have communicated to you, listen, I know you like her and you have a lot of affection for her, that you're perhaps even uh, um, confusing with lust and other things, but listen, here are qualities that she is exemplifying, that he is exemplifying, that is not indicative of a person with Christian character, I would avoid them. She had to have somebody had a servant's heart. You want that. Both in the man and the woman. Someone who ultimately says, I love you and because I love you, as a, I'm going to reverence and respect and serve you and the world around me as God has called me to do. If someone has an entitled attitude, if someone has a demanding attitude, if some, many things I could list here, Isn't it wise to avoid that person? Here's a final one that we see here. God had given Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, promises. Rebekah was willing to yield herself to Isaac because he was attempting to yield himself to the promises of God. Let me just simplify it here. If you're going to marry somebody and they're going to take you away from God and serving him, don't marry that person. Don't marry them. Don't think you can make some kind of an agreement at the onset of your marriage of years down the road when we have kids, I'm taking them to my church and all these things. Listen, when you make those decisions at 20 or 22 or 25, you don't know what you're talking about. Life is more complicated later on. That's not what God wants. God wants you to marry somebody that when you yoke together with them, Both of you are saved, both of you have servant's heart, and both of you want above everything for your lives to please God alone. Now I'll say this, if my children meet young ladies like that, I don't have much of an opinion about whether that person specifically is the right one or not. I don't know. That's between them and the Lord. But if they're not meeting certain qualities that the Bible commands... I feel it my duty to say it's not recommendable, right? Now, I say all this within the context of why? Because when Jesus begins to teach here, he clearly shows in verses 4 through 6 that marriage is meant to be permanent forever. You can read it. We'll read it right here in verse 4. He says this. So, 
They come tempting him. They're coming wanting to catch him so they can persecute him. They ask him the question, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And it said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the twain shall be one flesh. Verse six, wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now again, here in this text, it's clearly teaching us Marriage is meant to be forever. Now this morning, even if you're divorced, I can speak to my mom about this subject, and she agrees 100%. Marriage is meant to be forever. If you're divorced this morning, don't you want in our upcoming generation for them to be married once forever? Absolutely. That's what God's design was. Now he knows Sin was going to enter the world after he set up this institution. And he has made through his word certain provisions in light of that sin. But it is necessary as a starting place for us to declare God wants marriage to be permanent. Now when he instituted this, he knew of all the hardships that would come in a marriage. He knew the variety of pain and suffering and anxiety and depression and children rebelling and all the weights that married couples endure. He knew the things that was going to strive to pull all of them apart. And yet knowing, even in the worst case scenarios, God knowing that still decided that marriage was meant to be permanent. And I'll say this this morning, one of the things that is most likely to have a positive impact in leading your children to the Lord is a marriage which personifies the picture of Jesus Christ and his church in their home every single day. When they see a husband loving his Christ and a wife serving as the church, that is a daily reflection in their life of the gospel. That's why it is so imperative That marriage is held in such honor and esteem because it transcends even its own pragmatic value. Or it's worth more than just, well, they stayed together and it helped the kids. It's more than that. It's a picture of Christ. I think whenever I read all these family books, that's the part they'll mention that. But they often lack to establish that as the foundation When my children see me loving my wife, do they see Jesus Christ in what I'm doing? Do they see sacrifice? Do they see someone who is not self-focused? Someone who will give all that I have for the welfare of my wife and articulate that both to the world, but most importantly to her? Do they hear me loving her? Do they see me loving her? Because is that not the way that Jesus loved his church while he was on the earth? You see, when they see that, there becomes a trust in those people who are symbols of Christ in the church. And I believe it makes our words to our children more effective when we begin to discuss Christ and his church. When they see his character and his intended character in his church exemplified in the home day in And day out. Here. God wants it to be forever. I think. 
I think you do too for your children, don't you? Is there a situation where you can think of in your mind where you say, you know, for one of them, I'm okay if they... No, it's meant to be permanent. Part of the reason it's meant to be permanent is because you lose your identity when you get married. In a sense. You were two. That's what the word twain means. You were two. And now you're one. In every possible way, you're one. And there is a loss of personal identity. Have you ever known those people? We have some of them here at our church today. Have you known those people who you don't think of singularly? You think of them together? You don't think of this person and that person. They have become so one. And you often hear even the saying, which I don't think has any biblical root, even as you get older, you start looking alike, right? Uh, now, again, that's, that's kind of humorous, but it is, there's a sense to which, isn't that a good thing? That you, you become so similar to one another and you become so aware of one another. And, and it's funny, the longer that I've been married, although not as long as many of you, I can know how she's thinking about a certain situation and vice versa. That's what God wants. God wants a oneness in each other. The two shall become one. I want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 7 because obviously then we, we step to the next part and this is the part that is uncomfortable and people don't like, but we got to see what God's word establishes about it. Marriage is meant to be permanent. But sometime during the time of Moses, and I'm not... I mean, I know it's in the law. I'm not exactly sure what those men were referencing in Matthew chapter 19. But people began to divorce for any reason. Now, that's a really big, important word that we're going to pick up on here in a few moments when we get to 1 Corinthians 7 here. Notice their question is not about divorce specifically. It's, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause, for any, any reason? Now, we're going to hold on to that thought, and we'll come back to it here in a minute. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is writing to this church who is way out of whack in a whole bunch of areas that I'm not going to go through today. But in chapter 7, he begins to deal with both sexual impropriety, like we talked about a few weeks ago, and then marriage and divorce. And so, in verse 1, he speaks to the young man or young woman who is not married, and he says, it's good for you not to touch a woman, to fornicate. Right? The word touch means to fasten to. It's good for that not to take place. He goes on and in verses 2 through 5 basically says, if you cannot resist, it's better for you to marry than to fornicate. Not to burn within yourself in lust and continue violating God's word about sex, but rather it's better for you to go ahead and marry that person. That's what he deals with in, in 2 through 5. He also talks about... When a couple is married, what we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, uh, marital abstinence. Your body is not your own, it is your spouse's. And there is a compelling reason you have to surrender yourself in that way to your spouse for their good. He deals with these various things. He comes down to verse 10, and let's read what he says here. So he has just said it's better to marry than to burn in lust. And then he begins to regulate marriage to some extent. Here's what he says. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. I want to clarify something he says here that caused me some trouble for a while to understand until somebody explained it to me. Notice he says there, yet not I, but the Lord is commanding this. 
So then a lot of times what people say is, so you're telling me this isn't inspired scripture that is written here? Because he's saying, I'm saying this and it's not the Lord. That's not what he's saying here. What he's talking about is he's referencing Jesus teaching on this subject. And he's saying, I am teaching this because Jesus didn't cover this during his earthly ministry. So I am covering it now. So he's not saying it's not inspired. He's just saying, I'm not repeating Jesus' words. I'm teaching this under the inspiration of the scriptures. He says this, Let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Verses 10 and 11, Paul is writing and he's saying this, If you have two believers who are married and begin to contemplate divorce, don't do it. Reconcile. That's the same thing. Now, we're going to explain more here in a little bit. But can't we all agree that that is the best case scenario moving forward for everyone? Two believers. Both have stated, I am trying to surrender and follow God's will. No matter all the, 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 the difficulty that a marriage undergoes, God's desire and this church's desire for you is that even if things get difficult, and you notice he says there, let her not depart. But if she does depart, so don't separate from one another. But if they do separate, let them reconcile again and stay married. God's desire for believers who are married is that you would stay married forever. He turns the page, or at least in my book he does, in verse 12, and he says this, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. So this is the part that he is commanding that Jesus did not cover in Matthew 19 or Mark 10. He says this, If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. So in the first group of people, he's saying, believers. Here are the rules that govern believers' behavior whenever you're considering divorce. And that is simply reconcile. He comes to the next place and he's talking, he says, now to the rest. What does that mean? To someone who's married to an unbeliever. Now I'm speaking, I'm the one doing the talking, this is not something Jesus covered in the Gospels, which is pretty evident. He says, If they are okay with dwelling with you, staying with you, stay with them. That's really tough, isn't it? So if I'm yoked to an unbeliever in marriage, and they want to remain married, and we're going through all these difficult times, Paul instructs here, stay married. Now, there's more to it, so don't pause here. Verse 13, he says, And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not... And if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So it's true for both sides. So then the question becomes, why? Why would would God command that through the Apostle Paul? Because you have likely been exposed, and perhaps some of you have experienced, awful situations being married to an unbeliever. And so the natural man would say, get away. And I'll say this, very often people who are in a struggling marriage run to people for counsel that don't believe what God's word teaches, but wants to give them advice based upon what they would do and what their emotions would justify in a similar situation. Flee those people. 
Don't look to counselors who will indulge your own desires. A good friend, a good counselor is one that says, well, listen, here's what the Bible says. And we'll try with grace to apply it in your life and situation. So why would it be an advantageous thing for a saved person to stay with a lost person in marriage, even if it's really difficult? Well, Paul tells us, here's what he says. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy? Let me keep reading here. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under the bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Now, I'm not going to speak specifically to what it means that, an unbelie- that a believing spouse sanctifies or helps them to re- the children to remain holy. But I think what you can draw from verse 14 very safely and from verse 16 is this. God's promises are given to his children. A whole wealth of promises and blessings are given to us as his children. If a person is yoked with an unbeliever and they have become one flesh with that unbeliever, that unbeliever is becoming a partial beneficiary of the blessings that their saved spouse is receiving. And so Paul is saying, they're experiencing that grace and that mercy, that cleansing, and your children are experiencing that grace. And then to me in verse 17 or 16, he really crescendos the point and he says this, and who knows whether by remaining married with them, they'll be saved. Isn't that the goal? If you're married to an unbeliever and you could point to all these various things where your marriage is imperfect and things are really difficult, isn't it the best to go back to the the core or the root of it and say, you know what can change all of that? If that person would get saved and come to know Christ. I don't want to divorce them. I want them to know the God I know and be compelled by the God that I serve to serve him in like fashion. That's ultimately what God wants for people who are married to unbelievers. Not that they would be criticized and beaten down, but that that unbelieving spouse would get saved and that home would then reflect the picture that God designed for marriage in the first place. And that that would be a benefit both to the unbelieving spouse and to all of the children. Praise God we have examples of that very thing happening where saved people in their youth recklessly married somebody not knowing that it probably wasn't the best situation and they continue in marriage and they stay married to that person and they're struggling and they come to the church and they say, I need your prayers because these various things are happening. And then over a long period of time, following the instructions of Paul and some of Peter's teaching, they stay married to them. They seek in all cases to to, to show love and to show Christ's word in their life to them. And eventually that spouse gets saved and the whole marriage changes. That's what God wants. He wants ultimately the soul of the unbelieving spouse to be his and it might require a degree of patience that Job alone knows about. 
in order to see it come to pass. So what is the instruction to those of you who are married to an unbeliever? As long as they will be with you, stay with them. Stay with them. Love them. Do the best that you can to live as Christ has commanded. There may be areas of your spouse's deficiency that you need help. And that's what we're for. That's what the church is for. A woman married to a man, and he is nothing of a godly father. Well, maybe some of the men of this church could become that godly example before him, with him, helping to more intimately show him the ways of God in growing up to be a godly man. Paul also gives instruction here, and I'm going to be closing here in just a few moments. Just bear with me. However, in verse 15, if an unbelieving depart, a spouse wants to depart, let them depart. You're no longer under bondage in that case. Did you get that? There are cases when you're married to an unbeliever, they want to leave. Nothing you can do about it. I've heard people get really bent out of shape about you know, signing a paper and whether they should sign the paper or not. Paul is saying here, you're not under bondage. If they desire to leave, you can let them leave. That's a very difficult thing to do. And I I recognize in what I'm saying here today, what I'm trying to do is not cover 100% of every issue, but I am trying to put before you principles that cover a a good 98% of the situations that our church and our marriages find themselves in. There are difficult times where applying these truths are not easy. I want to call one more thing to your attention, then I'll be done this morning what is often called the one exception that Jesus gives back in Matthew chapter 19. The one exception to divorce that Jesus gives. Now, some people will say marriage is permanent no matter what, never get a divorce. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, if we go back there, notes one thing. So think of it like this, and I find the disciples' response kind of hilarious in this narrative going back and forth. Jesus, they come to him with a question, the Pharisees do, and they say, can we divorce our wives for any reason? And Jesus says, marriage is permanent. It's meant to be that way. They respond and they say, well, Moses gave us a bill of divorcement. And there was a certain three-step procedure that in the Old Testament, Jews would go through to divorce their spouse. And Jesus basically says, Listen, he gave that to you because of the hardness of your hearts and your own sin. God designed marriage to be permanent. And then in verse 10, the disciples say, well, then who wants to be married under these rules? Right? Which is kind of funny to me. Like, that's a diff- they're acknowledging the difficulty of marriage. And they're saying, if there's no way out except one door, who wants to be married? So recognize what Jesus is doing here. Oftentimes people will say Jesus permitting a a divorce because of adultery is him just opening this wide door for people to walk through. Actually, Jesus is doing the opposite. They came and said, can't we divorce for any reason? And Jesus says, no, you don't have all of those reasons you can divorce for. There's one. He is narrowing what God considers a just reason to divorce. And it's found in verse 9. He says, whosoever shall put his, way, his wife except for fornication and shall marry another committeth adultery 
and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Jesus indicates in verse 9 here, unless it's for adultery, we should stay married to our spouses. Now, very often what is the case is that that's really tough for some people to swallow. And I understand why. Because there's a whole litany of difficulty that a person can go through in the midst of a marriage that appears unbearable. So this morning, I'm not coming up here in condemnation that your marriage is struggling and falling apart, and I'm saying, well, just hang in there until the end, and and I'm not being legalistic like that. I am trying to express to you, here's what God's Word says about marriage. And let me say this, and I was going to wait until the end to say this, but I want to say it now. Very often, one of the mistakes that people make in marriage whenever they start going through a hard time is they wait until things are unsalvageable before they seek help. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't wait until the seed has become a 300-year oak tree in your marriage that requires much pain and cutting before you can get those problems out of your life and out of your marriage. When it starts to take root, get help for your marriage. The amount of people that get marital counseling is probably about a tenth of what it ought to be. Because there are things, and and let me say this, I'm not even talking about in lieu of divorce. I'm talking about in lieu of structural damage that can be done in a marriage that has an impact on the whole home and your spiritual life. In other words, let me say it like this. If your marriage is a hindrance to your spiritual growth and closeness to God, why don't you seek help for it? Why don't you seek counseling for your marriage? Even if the spouse will not come, go to those older men and women. Go to those people who can be of help and benefit to you in your marriage that you might know how God wants you to live so that it never gets to this place. Right here, Jesus is establishing these truths. I call it the exception clause because that's the one exception that he gives for divorce. Now, I want to say this in closing about divorce. Because of this exception, not every divorce is sinful. Not every divorce is sinful. But every divorce is occasioned by sin. At least in one person. You very often hear people say, well, there's fault on both sides in every divorce. That's not true. That's not true. I didn't say there wasn't any sin. It's impossible that we won't sin in our marriage. I sin against Kathleen daily, and she does me daily, but none of those warrant a severing of our marriage. But even if God has justified a divorce, didn't sin cause that justification in adultery? Now, that's one-sided. Let me say this. I am very sympathetic to people who have been divorced, especially if it's for a biblical reason. 
Whenever I was a kid, my mom explained it to me this way, and it made a lot of sense. I still remember where we were at when we were driving when she told me this. I said, why does it hurt so bad? I was about 12. Why does it hurt so bad? Now, I realize now I experienced just a small part of what she did as a divorced person. And she said, well, imagine this. Imagine you became one flesh with somebody, and you're indistinguishable to that person. So when you look at them, it's one person. Think of one body. Came into one. And then all of a sudden, you're pulling it apart. Well, guess what happens? The one person takes some of that other person with them. That other person takes the other person with them, some of it. It hurts. Part of that is evidence of God's design that it was meant to be permanent. This morning... Here's what I don't want to do as well. Let's say you're here this morning, or maybe people are listening online this today, that in your past you've been divorced, and it was a sin, and you know it. And you have been forgiven of that sin. I'm not here to rake you over the coals this morning at all. And I mean that with all sincerity, because I know these subjects hurt. But here's what I would encourage you to do, if that is the case. Don't seek offense. Seek to use your experience to verify what I'm saying to these young people that you don't want them to experience anything that you've gone through, even if you were the reason. In other words, there have been times where I've, me and Emmett are a lot alike in a lot of ways. When I was his age, I was very adventurous. I have, you probably can't see it, I have chipped teeth in my front teeth because I was doing something stupid in a tree and fell out and chipped my tooth, Right? I say that for this reason. I remember one day at our old house seeing him up in a tree like that, doing precisely the thing that I was doing. Guess what I thought of? My chipped teeth. So I had him come down, and I had him fill the groove on my teeth, and I said, I was an idiot. Don't do that. (laughs) Okay? Now, there's a sense to which in this push to be offended by anybody who condemns sin... For us to get defensive of our own past sins and justify them. As a Christian, ought ought we not to use our sins differently than that? If God can get glory and people can be helped through our past now forgiven sin, don't let Satan bludgeon you with guilt, but rather bludgeon him back with using your own sin as a means to instruct people to avoid sin in the future. This morning, there's a lot more that I could say to this subject. I certainly did a very deficient job in trying to bring it before you. But here's what I do want to say. God has a will for marriage and divorce. It is in his word. We've got to want to know what his word says about it. And then we need God's grace and the courage to follow it. I hope this morning that it was of some benefit to you. Marriage is important. Divorce is destroying a once blossoming nation. Certain demographics within our culture have been decimated by what I would consider one singular cause, and that is divorce. And I hope that you would desire to follow God's will in reference to it. That's our message this morning. I hope it's a benefit to you. I hope that you won't let it 
you thought that I was saying something and are offended by it, I hope you would come talk to me about it. Um, Because I do have a sincere intent to establish what God's word says about divorce and nothing more than that. That's our message this morning.